You have 24 minutes, the podcast from 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. What exactly is placemaking or creative placemaking? When it comes to art that is created for and found in public settings, what's the difference between graffiti, murals, and street art? How can public spaces and urban art be shaped in ways that are inclusive and respectful of those who will interact with them the most? And what does any of this have to do with our cities and neighborhoods at night? We're about to find out in this episode of 24 Minutes as we talk with Katie Yellow, Senior Director of Creative Placemaking and Events for Downtown Vision, Inc. in Jacksonville, Florida. Here's Katie. I was just of the generation of what we kind of considered American dreamers, right? We grew up on that you could come from nothing and make something of yourself, and that fueled my fire. I was definitely given a very interesting deck of cards to play, and I've just always had kind of what Germans refer to as fire in the belly, just always a lust for life, always an interest in giving attention to kind of those who have been forgotten about, the less desirables, those who slip through the cracks, or those who just end up not having access to opportunity in a system that really just fails so many people. The system failed me. It failed my family. Welfare is not a career. It is not a good career option as a young woman, uh, knowing that there's so much more to the world, but also not seeing the world, not really knowing there is so much more. You know, today we think about the marginalized communities, people who have just seen direct impact on their livelihood and quality of life because of their access, access to the arts, access to education, access to banking and opportunities. So yeah, I was growing up. I always tell this story about how I got into this truly as a young woman. I was a homeless youth. And so I saw public space in a really dynamic way. It wasn't you know, a great asset to my neighborhood and improved my property values. And it was a great gathering place. At times for me and others, I knew it was a living room, a bedroom, a kitchen. And in those interactions, similar to how this whole field of placemaking started, just observing public space, I just observed that people were quite literally treated differently based on how they looked and used the space. When I was exposed to the principle that public space is truly public and, you know, it's not illegal to be homeless, you can use it in the ways that are best fit for you and your culture and your community. I just took that charge really seriously. Um, It was a personal and lived experience, as well as something I could really subscribe and believe in. And it was also married with just my love for art uh, and the barriers to access that we talk about nationally with museums, tickets, intimidating architecture, transportation to you know, the solution of free days isn't really a solution. It doesn't address those behind the scenes issues. I just will never forget standing in front of my first mural and having the museum experience outside without having to pay, without having to be intimidated or knowing how to act or interact with it, if I could touch it or not. And that was so powerful that I started painting murals. And in that process, I learned that There's no way I can change the world alone. So I started training other painters and mural techniques. So taking a studio practice outdoors. And then from there, I got into whole festivals. So one mural painter can do a lot. A group of mural painters can paint a whole town, but whole towns and cities could transform from these mural festivals. Um, I held Mural Fest in Binghamton, New York. And then based on the success of that was recruited to Flint, Michigan to help put on their first international mural festival and have had my hands in festivals across the nation and actually in Western Europe as well. So I just kind of took that original passion, that original observation 
and made a life of it. Uh, the thing is that my job didn't exist 10 years ago. Uh, placemaking was being done by organizations like the NEA and Art Place America, but there were really not positions uh, for practitioners. So I would write a grant, do a project, write a grant, do a project, and just build a portfolio. And then when I noticed uh, the trend in 2015, Orlando hired a director of placemaking. I just knew that this was the future and that I would one day have the title and, and serve a city in this capacity. So I was the inaugural placemaker in Flint, Michigan. That was the first time it was in my title, even though I've been practicing for over a decade. I really cut my teeth there and uh, was recruited to Jacksonville, Florida, where I currently practice. And it's the first time I've had an appointed position that's you know not grant funded or term limited or short term, if you will. And so it's just an incredible story to go from, you know, a orphan child, no parents to someone who is now a thought leader and very well respected in the field in terms of creative placemaking um, and resident engagement. Okay, now, so you know what placemaking means, and I know what placemaking means. But for those other folks who may be listening to this go, placemaking, what, what the heck does that mean? Yeah, it's a really powerful term. I have come to describe it as a pool of resources for people who are community engagement um, fanatics, people who are going out and improving their parks, their streets, their neighborhoods, their business districts, and you end up needing resources, permits, admin support, you need capacity building, you need funding. That's what placemaking is a pool of resources. It's traditionally defined as a collaborative community planning process that engages residents to design, activate, program, and ultimately define their public spaces to meet their needs. It's a highly participatory process. I take the definition extremely seriously and apply it directly from the amount of money we're spending to how we're getting the funding to what the space is like. It's completely participatory for me in my process. The residents are truly deciding what park we're doing, what the music is, how much we're paying the bands every step of the way. And it's meant to just improve the system where we have the top down, not meeting with the bottom up, mm. and where we have people who are designing and funding programs and designing spaces as not the end user. So they don't think about the nitty gritty of the space and what it truly based on using it. I saw um, a graphic yesterday that came out of placemaking.org that showed this floating kind of iceberg in the water and it described what placemaking is and the parts that people see above the water, uh, the changes, the visual changes, the use changes, but the part below the water that people don't see that have to do with this whole planning process you're talking about and the whole maintenance and sustainability and the governance of the space after that. So there's what normal people see and then what normal people don't see, which seems to reinforce exactly what you're saying. Yes. And it reminds me of my recent experience here. I just launched the first series of these citizen-led demonstrations in public spaces. I've been in Jacksonville a year and a half, and it just took so much behind the scenes work to get the residents' idea from ideation conceptualization to full-blown plan, you know, dates, permits, and also just working remedial with residents. Mm. So those barriers are, are hard to address. Uh, people are working nine to five jobs. They can't attend a 2 p.m. community engagement meeting. They can't go to city hall. Uh, when they try to work through the systems, there's just, it, they're not in sync. And so when you introduce a resident to the power that they own public space, I often say making public space more public. It's not as simple as them 
oh, wow, with my work too. It's so nuanced. There's so much work to do to not just educate them on the process, but also there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. Public spaces and government processes are associated with a tremendous amount of trauma for residents for so many reasons. In Flint, Michigan, in the water crisis, Uh um, the list goes on. There's just a distrust with government and a lot of healing that needs to happen. So over a year and a half, I've just developed those relationships, educated the residents through this process, and then finally launched. So yeah, you really just see a fraction of the work. And it's just really important to see the bottom of the iceberg. So I appreciate that graphic hugely. So let's talk a little bit about placemaking and street art and the night. Of course, 24-hour nation's focus tends to be on the nighttime economy. Where is the place for street art and placemaking after dark? Yeah, I really appreciate this question um, because the the pop-ups that I work on, they typically happen in the evening hours. So you see some of the same issues that the new field of nighttime life is addressing, governance, policing and safety, healthy and cleanliness. So the public spaces are not acting any differently at night, but they're entering a new environment and ecosystem that is completely different from the nine to five user, as we know and attest to and are like forging this field because of that difference. So what you need are the same elements, typically clean spaces, accessible, affordable, proximal to other businesses. So there's vibrancy, but you also have needs in the nighttime that the daytime users just simply don't, they don't apply. So the place for these projects at night in public space is typically for me, just around advocacy. A lot of what I do through my process is a lot of research and development. So we're actually in the space with our hands and we can give qualitative data on what the space needs. Oh my gosh, it has no bathrooms and electric. During the day, you might not recognize that because you're sauntering over from the office. But when you go to like plug in your band, bring in a huge group, make it a vibrant public space, you face all these issues. So I think the role is advocacy in being a a user and truly knowing hands-on what the space needs and then going all the way through the process of advocating for facilities, advocating for maintenance, cleanliness, Things that make the space not just accessible to the resident who's programming it, but the ultimate goal is that people come back or that people see the improvements and want to participate in public life there. Okay. And and we know, we know that cities are not designed for the night as a rule, and they're not designed for women, specifically women at night, or people of different abilities, specifically at night. How can this creative placemaking for the night be more inclusive of people of different backgrounds, people of different genders, people of different abilities? How how can that be a demonstration of how it can be done well? This nighttime becomes a lab to show the daylight world how it can be done well. Tell us about that. Do you have some sense of that or some examples of where that's where that's been proven? Yeah, so my undergraduate is in mathematics, so I'm just naturally a problem solver. Um, and in the field of mathematics, we always kind of look for the root of the problem to solve it. So I always I do think like that. And what I noticed a long time ago is kind of what I referenced earlier, the top down, the kind of lack of governance, government officials being the end user. What I also noticed is that room of people doesn't look like the end user either. It doesn't typically um, reflect and truly represent the city. Um, One of the first things I heard over and over in Jacksonville when I first got here and started my field work was, please make 
the leadership look more like us. Um, mm. And I really take that to heart. And I believe uh, you can apply that to why spaces aren't thought about at night. If we had people who are night users or thinking about nighttime economy in government roles, and not even in a professional way, just a seat at the table. Mm. That's a really big thing. Uh, that's something I'm really big on is a seat at the table. Um, a mentor of mine told me if you're not, if you don't have a seat at the table, you're oftentimes the meal. And that really is something I, that resonates with me and that I teach other people. I understand it's exhausting to even get in the door or get a seat, but it's really important because of that planning, that discussion um, that happens, that affects everything, that affects the access to funding, the amount of funding a government entity is applying to a space. And so that kind of advocacy work or the bottom of the iceberg needs to happen. Um, but yes, we could definitely improve by just diversifying our governance, diversifying our who our funders are, and really making sure that representation reflects the city proper. Um, and how much of this mm, inclusion stance that you have is driven by your personal experience of having felt like you were excluded? Yeah, I mean, I think it's directly correlated and understanding the power of having a voice at the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just was kind of systematically excluded from spaces in many ways, mostly because of social status and economic status. And then when I finally got into them, I even think about my undergraduate experience. I was definitely not meant to go to college. Uh, my caseworkers and some of my kind of adult supervisors always encouraged it. And when I got to undergrad, I quite literally didn't know how to act. I just didn't know how, how to socialize properly. Um, and it was just because of being born into a part of the system that just really honestly rejects you. And seeing the impact on my community of half of us living at or below the poverty line, half of us being kind of subjected to always being renters um, because of all of these systematic depressions, um, staying in depression. Right. And so I like my life's purpose to let other people know, like, do you know, this is public and it's yours. And I mean, I always kind of joke that even to drug dealers and those in the black market who may or may not participate in tax paying systems, that is still your park. And I just never judged anyone if they had a felony status, if they only could partake in certain economies and that was their livelihood. I never saw people as less. And to, to this day, I don't. I think that's the real magic in my practice. I am judgment-free. I am not here to, to in, interpret when people speak. I really listen and apply what they're asking for. And whenever I give a lecture or a speech or a workshop or a training, I'm always emphasizing how important it is to not interpret what residents are saying. That's not our role as a placemaker. It's really as all right, you want more of X, Y, Z. How do we go get more of X, Y, Z? Not, hey, did you think about not doing X, Y, Z? No, they're speaking from a place of informed education. The community is the expert and they're coming from lived experience that is so valuable. So when you interpret it, you're stripping that value in that process. It's so important to just listen. I can't tell you how many times I've seen uh, placemaking events. That's five o'clock. Okay, time for everybody to go home. It's like, okay, this was not designed by people who live and speak from the night. So I totally get that. I want to come back a little bit to street art and what you know many would call street art. Uh, there are those uh, street artists who have made it to the inside of the museum, the Keith Herrings, the Shepherd Fairies, the Bambies, the Banksies even. How do you 
help somebody discern the difference between what street art is and what just graffiti is and spray paint tagging. There is this kind of response, I think, from the nine to five world, perhaps, that looks at all street art as just being graffiti. And what is the place for street art in the night? Yeah, I love that question so much. And that's, I think, my true expertise, um, because that's how I came into being a creative placemaking expert or specialist. Um, I've written my book on this exact topic, and I do a really cool project myself called The Outdoor Classroom, where I teach the history of graffiti, the history of murals, and the history of street art, because they're actually three totally different art movements that have been clumped into an unsophisticated person, not, I don't want to say unsophisticated, someone who just isn't nerding out on it like I am. Got um, I, got teach, <laughs> um, I teach the difference between those three and it really comes to light because they have three unique histories. Well, tell us, what, what are they? Give, briefly, tell us about those three. Yeah, yeah I would love to. So um, graffiti art started, at least the American story started in the 1960s. Uh, there's kind of a battle right now between if cornbread in Philadelphia or Taki one uh, Taki in the South Bronx started it. I have the bias of the South Bronx. That's where my mom's side of the family is from. Um, essentially, he was a newspaper boy. He was running all over the five boroughs, throwing up T-A-K-I 183 on everything he could. Um, in the late in the 1970s, New York Times wrote an article on it and it like birthed graffiti as a conversation topic to the fine art world. Basquiat, Herring, uh, and Warhol running around were really uh, pop artists. Basquiat did not want to be considered a graffiti writer for so many reasons. And then Cornbread in Philadelphia was also kind of a pioneer here. And essentially, the way that the writers would crew up, the culture around graffiti making, the philosophy of anti-establishment, that it's ephemeral, that it's unpaid and raw, and you kind of have to go out in the middle of the night and you know, neglect the systems that neglected you. That's really the the culture and practice of graffiti. Muralism started, I think it's honestly uh, considered the oldest art form known to man. The Altamir Caves is like, I, I believe still to date, the first form of art that we know of. And it was finger painting on cave walls, which, you know, in many ways can be equivalent to a mural. Uh, you saw the Mexican muralismo movement. Um, and you saw, you know, what happened during the WPA administration when the government paid artists to go into the post office and the bank and put up these beautiful works of art. That is completely different culturally and historically from graffiti. The practice, the tools, they really are different. Uh, you're not running up on a wall and putting up a mural. There's a lot of a There's a much different process to that. And then you saw the birth of street art, which was taking elements from both and creating political statements that were really punchy in the streets. Uh, and those were done with wheat paste and stencil and many you know, different tools that graffiti writers or muralists were using, but not truly defined by. So they're completely different practices, different cultures. They do all go together kind of under urban art and public art, but that's what I do. I try to define those three for people. I always encourage a uh, grabbing a copy of my book so you can learn by more examples. And then the outdoor classroom is an incredible program where I can essentially teach that via a mural tour. So I'll walk people around for a couple of hours, tell them that history, and then point out examples. Hey, that's graffiti murals or street art. Here's why. Here's the technique. Here's the artist and what they believe in and the storytelling behind it. 
I'll so add a link to your book on the post for this because uh, I did kind of flip through uh, some discussion about your book and I found it very interesting. I'm speaking with Katie Yellow. She's the Senior Director of Creative Placemaking and Events for Downtown Vision, Inc. in Jacksonville, Florida. Their links are dtjax.com. They're also at dtjax and placemakingjax. Uh, on social media. Here's my final question of you, Katie, and I appreciate your time. Again, then this larger category of urban art at night. How's it valuable at night if you can't see it? Or how's it applied to the night? And is it always just two-dimensional? Is street art ever three-dimensional and have that same kind of value to the viewer? This is a really interesting question. I have seen a couple of artists kind of and not very many. There's a, a gentleman named Bordalo, B-O-R-D-A-L-O, and he uses recycled materials to build kind of a three-dimensional sculptural mural. Um, that's very unusual. I think what kind of cause is doing uh, by taking his, uh, and Hebrew Brantley, they're taking their two-dimensional street art and turning it into sculptures that are public art statements, especially cause floating his sculptures down the river. There's a, few, a very few, few, few groups that go in three-dimensional. It mostly is two-dimensional artworks. And it, it plays a huge role at night. When I had done the mural festival in my hometown, um, I was inspired by Toronto's mural fest that just passed. To me, them and Colorado Crush were doing it before it was truly like a cool thing. They were doing it for the culture, by the culture, hosting some of the first mural festivals that I had ever seen. And now I feel like you can't go to a town or city and not see a mural. And there are quite literally hundreds of mural jams and festivals that happen throughout the world all year round. The evening component I think people are speaking to is economic development. We saw tourism. We saw uh, an improved psychology of residents because of the literal vibrancy of the colors. Um, but we also saw a direct threat to neighborhoods. Um, I was in Brooklyn in 2014 when it just kind of fueled gentrification. Um, and it's actually a large reason why I got away from the kind of organization of it because I just couldn't get it right. And I couldn't be okay with um, a mural going up in a brewery and residents being displaced. Not that every single program does that, but I found that practitioners and people involved were not um, nuanced in the responsibility of neighborhood development as it relates to murals. Um, so at night, it, it's not that you can't see them. It's not that they're for daytime users. Uh, a lot of cities are putting whole arts districts around their mural projects. They're doing incredible investments in uplighting. They really are becoming a visual asset to a neighborhood. And speaking of placemaking, a sense of places being established. When you see cities really organize with a community engagement component to their murals so that they reflect the city, they're not just pretty pictures. Um, you see an incredible sense of place and community development and neighborhood development in the right direction. Um, so it's a very powerful tool, but can also be a really evil tool if it's not corralled properly. We don't know about you, but as a general rule, we prefer public spaces and public art that are powerful and being used for good, especially at night. This has been Season 2, Episode 18 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation. Visit us online at 24hournation.com and follow us on social media at 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White.